Hello, and welcome to another edition of the Christian Faith Radio Hour. This is David Canfield, and I'm recording this in Chicago on Friday, September 22, 2023. In the previous couple of programs, I've been sharing about the millennium. Uh, a couple of programs ago, we were on the topic of the reward of the overcomers during the millennium. And in the last program, I was dealing with the matter of amillennialism uh, and showing why this is such a false teaching. So I want to begin the program today by making some general comments about why does it matter whether we have an amillennial or a premillennial view of the end times? What's the big deal about that? Isn't that just some theological question? And then after that, I want to make a couple of more points specifically about amillennialism itself. And that will take up the first segment of the program. And then I want to go on, and as I mentioned in the previous program, I want to consider some of the reasons why this matter of the reward and discipline of the believers in the coming age is not commonly understood by Christians today. So that's the, the basic plan for today, and we'll see as the Lord allows how, how we do with that. My guess is that some of those listening to this program may be scratching their heads a little bit. Why does it really matter so much whether we, in the next age is we go into a 1,000-year reign of Christ on the earth or whether we go into eternity? How does that affect us today? Well, the answer is it absolutely affects how you come to the Bible today. If you take the amillennial view, you simply cannot look at the Bible in a serious way, at least not when it comes to prophetic matters. Now, I know in other areas uh, concerning uh, salvation, justification, uh, the nature of God, yes, okay, you can, but not when it comes to prophetic matters. That you have to set aside and just say you're not going to take the Bible as your authority. And those who who hold to this kind of teaching among evangelical Christians today, and the Reformed theologians in particular, they strongly say that the Bible is their authority, sola scriptura. You know, that was the big uh, battle cry of the Reformation, right? Only by the scriptures. The Bible is our only authority. But it's very clear when it comes to prophetic matters They do not take the Bible as their authority. Their authority is their theology. And where the Bible conflicts with their theology, it's not their theology that's going to give way. They just force and do everything they can to impose their theology on the scriptures. And that's really why it's so important that we reject that false teaching and recognize that there is going to be a millennium because then that enables us to really take the scripture as our authority. And I'll say it again, so many genuine believers, dear brothers and sisters in Christ who've been taught this amillennial view of the scriptures, they don't understand the extent to which it frustrates them from really entering into the genuine revelation that is in the scriptures and how much more there is in the scriptures concerning the biblical revelation of the end times. I'm going to talk in a minute here about Daniel chapter 2. I was looking at that chapter today. And I really appreciated Daniel chapter 2, verse 28, where Daniel tells King Nebuchadnezzar, there is a God in heaven who reveals secrets. I tell you honestly, if you take the amillennial view, you can never have that kind of God, a God who reveals secrets. It's just hidden from you because you've rejected the revelation that's in the scripture. And I hate to see that happening among my brothers and sisters today, uh, being deprived of the scriptures, being deprived deprived of the Bible like that when it's so clear as we and if you have any doubts I encourage you please listen to the previous program it is so clear 
that amillennialism is simply a false, even I would say a demonic teaching uh, that, it, that deprives Christians of the real hope of the Lord's return. The Apostle Paul, when he's talking to the Thessalonian believers, this young church, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, he says uh, that others had declared concerning us what manner of entry we had to you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven. And you really see here the three basic pillars of the Christian life in a very simple way. You turn to God from idols, you serve the living and true God, and you wait for his Son from heaven. Well, the Reformers, their commitment had to do with the first of those three pillars, to turn to God from idols. That's really what they did. They came out of the Roman church. They had a real turn to God. And that was a big step in the Lord's recovery of the truth. But they didn't go beyond that. That just wasn't the Lord's commitment to them, to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven. The other two, That's a, this last one, is also a real pillar of the Christian life that we're learning how to wait for his son from heaven. It wasn't until a few centuries later that other believers began to see this matter of what that really means, and particularly the Plymouth Brethren in the 1800s. And I, I'll say more about that later on in this program. So that's why it's so important to have a proper view of the end times because it enables to come to the Bible in a serious way. And as we do that, and we have a clear view of the Lord's coming, that's going to stir us up and help us realize we can't live for the present age. This world is headed to its doom. The Lord is coming back to establish his kingdom on this present earth, and I need to get ready for that second coming of Christ. That's the real blessing of, of having a proper view of the Lord's return, his second coming. Now, I do want to say a couple of more things relating specifically to the claims of amillennialism. The first of these has to do with their, what they always like to say is that there's only one explicit reference to the millennium in the entire scripture, and of course that's in Revelation chapter 20. But as I said last week, there's so many portions of the Old Testament that require the reign of the Messiah on the earth in order to fulfill the promises made to the nation of Israel in those passages. And as I was getting ready for this program, I was reminded in particular of Daniel chapter 2, which may be just about the most direct of those passages. And I'm not going to say too much about the chapter here, but just in a very general way, this is where Nebuchadnezzar has his dream of this great human image. And as it's explained in that chapter, this image consists of the four empires that are going to rule over the earth until the Lord comes back. So then at the end of his dream, uh, this is what Daniel, Daniel is uh, recounting the dream to Nebuchadnezzar. It says this, You watched while a stone was cut without hands, which struck the image of it on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, and the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed together and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. The wind carried them away so that no trace of them was found. And the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. So that's how what Daniel says to Nebuchadnezzar when he's recounting the dream. And he leaves no doubt as to what he's talking about here. In Daniel chapter 2, verse 44, he says, In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people. 
It shall break in pieces and consume all those kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. So that's the interpretation. So Daniel is saying that these human kingdoms are going to be destroyed, and God is going to set up another kingdom in their place. Well, notice here, it's not the earth that gets destroyed. It's the kingdoms upon the earth that get destroyed and replaced by this stone cut without hands, which beyond any question is a reference to the kingdom of Christ being established on the earth. So this chapter leaves no doubt that the Messiah is going to have a kingdom on the earth. It doesn't say for a thousand years you have to go to the New Testament for that. But for sure it's talking about an earthly kingdom of the Messiah. And this is why I say if you reject the view that there's going to be a millennial reign of Christ on the earth, you just you just make a hash out of the Bible. You just reject so much of what's in the scripture because there's no other clear way to interpret this portion of scripture. And I, again, I don't want to say too much. It's, it's quite a remarkable prophecy. And I will link to a podcast I've done on this chapter earlier. Uh, it's just remarkable how, well, as Daniel says in this chapter, the God of heaven reveals secrets because this prophecy of these four kingdoms has been fulfilled in every detail ever since it was given roughly uh, 600 B.C. Just an amazing prophecy. But the point uh, I want to make today is it does show us very clearly in the Old Testament that there has to be a kingdom of the Messiah on the earth for this promise to be fulfilled. It's just nonsense to say this is going to be fulfilled in the church. You're just, you're just not taking the Bible, as they say, in a serious way if you try to make that kind of a claim. And if you don't make that kind of a claim, no, what you're saying is God is going to break his promise. The, the, the Bible isn't true. This scripture is not going to be fulfilled. So that leaves you with some pretty unpleasant options if you're millennial. Number one, you make some nonsense out of the Bible. You just reduce it to a meaningless gibberish to fit with your theology. Number two, you say God's going to break his promise. He's not going to fulfill what he promised. Or number three, and this is the option I would suggest, with all due respect, is that you give up on this false teaching of millennialism and come back to what the scripture really reveals to us. And praise the Lord if you take that option. Amen. And if you think you may take that option, well, then maybe this next point uh, will help you in that regard. Because another point that the amillennials like to make in order to discredit the premillennial view of the Bible is to say that dispensationalism, it's a recent innovation. It's just, it's just been around for the last couple hundred years. It was Darby and the Plymouth Brethren. They make some other crazy claims about where it came from. Uh, but basically, they say it's only been around for a couple hundred years. Well, first of all, I find that claim very odd coming from people who themselves had a great innovation, at least their forebears did, uh, spiritually speaking, when they proclaimed the doctrine and the truth of justification by faith. That was an innovation. That hadn't been around for many centuries, probably for more than a thousand years, but it was in the Bible. People just hadn't seen it. So I've never really understood why the amillennials would think that claim has any force to begin with. But first of all, the basic point they're making just isn't true. Now, it is the case that a fully developed dispensational system did not come into being until the time of John Nelson Darby and the Plymouth Brethren in the 1800s. That's right. But the premillennial view of the Lord's return very much preceded the amillennial view in the early days of the church. It wasn't, as I said before, it wasn't until uh, Augustine of Hippo really set forth the amillennial view in 400 AD that that came into prominence in the church. 
the early church, the first believers, absolutely were premillennial in their view of the Lord's return. So actually, the premillennial view of the Lord's return very much precedes the amillennial view of the Lord's return in terms of church history. Now, church history is not our authority, but it's important to make this point because that is one way in which the amillennials tried to discredit the premillennial view. Basically, what they're saying is just false. It's just not true. The early Christians were premillennial. So to say that uh, premillennialism today is a recent innovation, that aspect of that claim is absolutely not true. And I made this point last week, but as I was getting ready for this week's program, I was looking at a book uh, called The Judgment Seat of Christ by D.M. Panton. And if I get to it later on in this program, I want to get more into this book, but it may be in the next program, I'm thinking now. But a very, very important book. Uh, Again, it's The Judgment Seat of Christ by D.M. Panton. Uh, He died, uh, I think, in 1955, so this would have been written about 1940 or 1950 or so. But it's a very basic study of this matter of how we will be judged at the judgment seat of Christ. I really encourage you to get a copy and to look up uh, so many of the verses that he refers to in this study and consider them for yourself. And and again, I'll link to that in the program notes below. But he has a portion in his book where he talks about uh, the millennium and and the, the view of the millennium that was held by the early church. And this is on pages uh, 35 and 36. And he has a number of quotes. I'm just going to read these quotes uh, from ones who strongly affirm this is what the early church believed. They were not amillennial. The early believers were for sure premillennial. So let me just read through some of the things Mr. Panton says in some of the quotes. He says, The millennial age has long dropped out of the vision of the church. But the return of our Lord in person to establish a kingdom over the whole earth was the universal faith of the church in its purest dawn. So this first quote is from Gibbon. And he doesn't give his full name, but I'm assuming this is the author of that monumental history of the Roman Empire, the rise and fall of the Roman Empire. So Mr. Gibbon says, The assurance of that return and reign was carefully inculcated by men who had conversed with the immediate disciples of the apostles and appears to have been the reigning sentiment of orthodox believers. And he has another quote from a man named Mosheim. This prevailing opinion met with no opposition previous to the time of Origen. And Origen died in 253 AD, so that gives you uh, an idea of when that was. So in other words, there was no opposition to the premillennial view of the Lord's return prior to about the 3rd century. And then uh, Mr. Panton adds a comment here. Until origin, no Christian writer can be found who denied it. That's how universal this belief was in the early church. Geisler, another Bible commentator, says this, No one can hesitate to consider this doctrine as universal in the church of the first two centuries. Very strong comment there. And then there's a man named Archbishop Chillingsworth. Chillingworth, he says this, The doctrine was believed and taught by the most eminent fathers in the age next after the apostles, and by none of that age opposed or condemned. It was the Catholic doctrine of those times. End quote. And Catholic there, of course, is a small c. It means universal. It was the universal doctrine of that time. And so, again, some very, very strong statements that the early believers, before the church became corrupted with Greek philosophy, 
and began to settle down in the world, they were premillennial in their view of the Lord's return. And again, that's not our authority. Our authority is not church history. Our authority is the scripture. But it does refute the claim that the amillennials make that this teaching of premillennialism is a recent innovation. It's not. It actually antedates very considerably their teaching of amillennialism. So that will do it for this segment of the program. In the next segment, we'll go on and begin to consider this question of why this teaching of the reward and discipline of the believers in the coming age is not commonly accepted and understood by Christians today. I just want to take a minute to remind the listeners that this program is being produced in connection with my website, which is thechristianfaith.org. I hope you'll visit that. I think there's a number of very useful resources on there to help you with your spiritual growth, with your walk with the Lord, and with your serving of the Lord, and to have a view of what God's purpose is. If you want to subscribe to our e-letter, which we send out a couple times a week, just click on the subscribe link there. And if you'd like to contact us, if you have comments or questions about the program or about the Christian life in general, you can send us a note at notes at thechristianfaith.org. So why is this concept concerning the reward and discipline of the believers in the coming age not commonly held among Christians today? That's what I want to consider in this segment of the program. But I won't be getting so much into specific Bible verses. That's what I want to do, hopefully, in the next episode of the podcast. In this segment, what I want to deal with is our mindset. I want to look at four basic issues regarding the kind of mindset we should have when we come to the scriptures to consider this matter. Because very often, the frustration doesn't have to do with the Bible verses. It has to do with our mindset. And the first is very straightforward, which is, very simply, we don't want to hear it. We like to hear about the free part. You know, God's salvation is a free gift. Well, praise the Lord for that. That's really so. So we like that part. But we don't like to take the part about our responsibility for how we follow Christ. Now, I'm not going to tell again the, the whole story about the free ice cream bar, but if you want to listen to that, you can go back to the, the previous podcast again. I told that story. But the point of that story, yeah, there's, there's a free part in the New Testament. But just like with the ice cream bars, to get the free part, you have to take the whole box. You can't just take the free part. But that's what Christians want to do today. They just take the free part and they think you can leave the rest behind. It is not so. Yes, there is absolutely something free in the New Testament. That's the free gift of salvation. But there is so much that goes along with that. Once you become a Christian, you should be a follower of Christ, which is something altogether different. Of course, it's based on the fact that we've had our sins forgiven, that we've been born anew. But to be a follower of Christ is a very, very different matter than simply having your sins forgiven. As I said before, uh, I'm, I'm currently working on a new edition of the New Testament, a new version, because I just feel what's out there right now just isn't adequate. So yesterday I was working on laying out the four Gospels and the Book of Acts for the newest draft. Again, mostly when it comes out. I just, I've kind of given up predicting on that type of thing. You have to get it right. But I was doing the layout and I was in these books of history. And as I was doing this, I just had a deep feeling 
So few Christians today, maybe none, have any idea of how serious a matter it is to be a follower of Christ. We simply don't see what's in the New Testament in this regard. And I'm, I'm speaking this word to you, but believe me, I'm speaking it to myself as well. None of us have an adequate comprehension of how serious a matter it is to really be a follower of Christ. We take it so lightly. You know, you just go to church maybe once or twice a week if you're a very good believer. You're in some meetings, you sing some hymns. I know we, we try to serve the Lord a little bit, uh, you know, and thank the Lord for that, for what we do see. And I know some are, are strike, striving to follow, follow the Lord more. But still, I think, and I just speaking for myself, I just had a sense, how much do I really understand the price that's involved in really being a follower of Christ? In Luke 14, it tells us, uh, verse 25, there are great multitudes following Christ. So what does he do? Is he so happy that they're following him? Well, maybe, maybe he was. But what he does, he turns around and he lets them know the cost of really being his follower. He says, if anyone does not come to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, in his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Do you see what he said? You can't be his disciple if you don't take this way. He goes on, whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Those are verses 25 and 26 of Luke 14. In verse 33, he goes on, So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. Very, very strong, sober word from the Lord. And we hear this and we'd say, wait a minute, wait a minute. I, I thought salvation was a free gift. All I have to do is believe and my sins are forgiven. Well, that's right. But to be a disciple of Christ is something altogether different than simply having your sins forgiven. And that's what the Lord's talking about here. We need to be so much more serious, so much more sober in our following of Christ. And I hope if you're hearing this word, you would open to the Lord about this matter and, and tell the Lord, Lord, I want to be so much more serious and so much more sober in my following of you and to take my Christian life in so much more serious a way than I have. Forgive me, Lord. I just repent. I haven't been serious enough in following you and really dealing with you and allowing you to deal with me to make me a real disciple, a disciple indeed. I hope so many would hear this word and respond in that way. There's an older brother named Titus Chu who has helped me a good deal personally and many others as well. He serves the Lord in Cleveland, Ohio and overseas as well. I'll link to his book, Born Again, in the program notes. He had a very good statement I heard him make, which I really appreciated. He said, Following the Lord is not a matter of desire. It's a matter of decisions. His meaning is, you can have all the desire you want, but if it's not having any effect on the decisions you make concerning how you live your life, how you spend your time, for sure we need to have a desire to follow the Lord. But it's when we, that desire really begins to affect how we live our life. That's when it really makes a difference. Someone else made a very good comment along these lines, which is that, a lot of Christians say very sincerely that they go to a firing squad for Christ, but you can't quite get them to go to church for Christ. <laughs> really so, oh Lord. Now Hudson Taylor, I always remember his word. Of course, he was a great missionary to China in the 19th century. 
I really appreciate what he said. The reason why we have so much trouble getting others saved is we're only half saved ourselves. It's because we don't take the Christian life seriously. We only see the free side of salvation, the free gift. We don't see the the cost of following Christ, and we don't pay the price to follow Christ in a genuine way. That's why the gospel in this country is so limited. If there were even some believers who really followed Christ in the kind of way we see in the gospels and in the book of Acts and in the whole New Testament, this whole country would be different. It would be turned upside down, just like the, uh, the early disciples turned the world upside down, it tells us in the book of Acts. I think Acts chapter 17, wasn't that when they came to Thessalonica? We turn the world upside down. So we need to ask the Lord for more grace and more soberness. And that's one reason why I'm sharing this word about the matter of the reward and discipline of the believers. So we will be more serious. And, and you know, the, the matter of God's free grace and, and concerning the gift of forgiveness of sins is absolutely true. But, but today it's been stressed and overstressed to the point where it almost becomes false the way it's presented. It's a t- in a totally unbalanced way. <clears throat> it's presented in the way it's presented. So it makes Christians irresponsible concerning their Christian life and, and, and completely just drugs them so that they're just standing around gazing into heaven, waiting to go and be with the Lord. No. There's another side to this truth concerning our salvation. And that brings us right to the second point about why this teaching is not common among Christians today, which is the truths that are in the Bible are always, always, always two-sided in nature. There's always one side that is balanced by another side of the truth. And when you see both sides of a truth, then you can have a balanced teaching regarding any matter that you are dealing with in the scriptures. The problem in this regard is we only want to see one side of the truth. We think if there's one side of the truth, then there could never be another side of the truth. And so if I see that one side of the truth, I'll never agree with believers who stress the other side. And this has caused countless problems, not just for individual believers, but within the church all throughout the history of the church. You know, the the Reformed theologians, they, they completely stress the matter of God's sovereignty. Well, yes, the Bible is very clear. God is sovereign. God is sovereign. Praise the Lord for that. He's over all. But in the Bible, the teaching of God's sovereignty is balanced by the teaching of man's responsibility. God's sovereignty does not negate man's responsibility. And the fact that man still has his responsibility shows us he also has a free will. He's responsible for how he lives his life. He can choose how to live his life and eventually he'll render an account for how he lives his life. But if you teach the sovereignty of God, and unfortunately, many Reformed theologians do this and and preachers, they they teach God's sovereignty in a way that completely negates and nullifies the teaching of man's responsibility and man's free will. And so your teaching becomes completely unbalanced and completely unhealthy. And so there's a lot of examples of this in, in the scripture. You know, God is three. But he's also one. And again, you have to have both sides of this truth to have a balanced teaching. Jesus is God, but he's also man. And many heresies come out, uh, real heresies, not just false teachings, but real heresies come out because uh, those who have taught the Bible have only seen one side or the other of this truth concerning deity of Christ on the one hand and his humanity on the other. 
Well, the same is true in the matter of salvation. It is absolutely true that in the sense of the forgiveness of sins and our being justified before God, that is God's free gift to us based on faith alone. Praise the Lord for that. But there is another side, which is we will be called to account to the Lord for how we lived our Christian life. That is another side of the truth, which is absolutely in the Bible. And one of the best ways to illustrate this particular point is that this matter of supposedly the contradiction between Paul and James. The Protestant uh, theologians like to stress what Paul tells us in Romans chapter 4, where he quotes Genesis, and he says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him for righteousness. That's, Ab- uh, that's Romans chapter 4, verse 3. So their justification is by faith alone. Praise the Lord for that. That's absolutely in the Bible. But the Catholic theologians, they like to stress what James tells us in chapter 2 of his epistle. He's talking about Abraham offering up Isaac. And then James says, You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. And it's ironic, the Catholics actually have a good point about this uh, verse here. They say this phrase, by faith alone, only occurs once in the Bible. And that's where James says, we are not justified by faith alone. Very, uh, you have to say, okay, they have a good point there. Well, how do you deal with these two aspects of the truth? Well, when you understand that these are two sides of the truth, then you don't have any problem. What you realize is in Romans chapter 4, the Apostle Paul is telling us about our standing before God. In that respect, we are justified by faith alone. In James chapter 2, what he's talking about is our experience. In Romans chapter 4, Paul was dealing with the point in which God promised Abraham he was going to have a son. In James chapter 2, he's talking about that point in Abraham's life when he actually offered up Isaac on the altar to God. That was the real experience. It wasn't just a promise anymore. He had the real experience not only of having Isaac, as we see at the end of Romans 4, but the real experience of being so much for God and for God's purpose, he was willing to offer his Isaac back up to God. Very, very profound picture in terms of our own spiritual experience. So he's talking about experience here. And once you understand that, then there's a real harmony between these uh, two different sides of the truth. But because Christians are only willing to see the one side of the truth, the matter of God's free grace, and not willing to see this side of our responsibility for how we live the Christian life, that also makes it very, very difficult for Christians to understand that this side of responsibility is in the New Testament. Uh, let me give an illustration, which I think is a very good one. And this is um, from a man named Robert Govet, And he was the one who really began to see this matter of the reward and discipline of the believers. He lived in the 1800s. And he used an example from astronomy. In uh, Sometime in the 1700s, the astronomers, because telescopes were becoming better and better, they had discovered the planet Uranus. And then they were watching this planet later on in the 1800s, and they could not figure out why it was moving in the way that it was. They were, of course, using the laws of Newtonian physics, and don't get, ask, please ask me what uh, those were about. But based on that, they figured Uranus should be here in the uh, its orbit, and but instead it was there. And they looked at it again, and, and it still didn't make sense. No, it should have been over here, but now it was there. They couldn't quite figure out 
was there a problem with the law of physics? Did we have something wrong? Was there something here we didn't understand? And then as Mr. Govet tells the story, someone had the idea, wait a minute, maybe there's something we don't see that's out there, another planet, in other words, that's acting upon Uranus and causing it to behave in the way that it is. And so they made the search uh, with their telescope at that time, and these astronomers, that's when they discovered the planet Neptune. And when they saw this other planet out there, then suddenly everything was back in harmony. Now they understood why Uranus was moving in the way that it was. No, the, the laws of physics were right. They just hadn't seen this other object that was out there. And as I say, Mr. Govet uh, really did a very good job of applying this. There's so many verses in the New Testament that just don't make sense if you only see the side of God's free grace. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Philippians 2.12 Well, wait a minute. I was already saved. I'm already saved. How can it possibly be that I still have to work out my salvation? What's that talking about? Well, you have to understand the New Testament has a another object in view other than simply the forgiveness of sins. It has to do with whether or not we will be rewarded when the Lord returns or whether we will be disciplined, which will be determined at the judgment seat of Christ. And it's only when you see this other object that's in view in the New Testament that you can really harmonize all the different verses in the New Testament and put them in their proper order just like the astronomers had to find that other object in the heavens in order to understand why Uranus was moving like it was. So now we come to the third point, and I'll just state it very directly and then explain it. And that is that the recovery of the truth among God's children and in the church as a whole is always progressive. And that's the same as it is in the scripture. Now, what I mean by that is that as all the real students of the Bible understand that the divine revelation in the Bible is never once for all. It's always progressive, bit by bit, little by little, line upon line. No truth in the Bible is ever presented in a complete way once for all. And that's kind of frustrating to the systematic theologians. They wish it was that way, and they like to present truths once for all. But that's not the biblical way. The biblical way is to present it here a little, there a little, and then you have to put together the pieces to get a full picture of any particular truth in the Bible. Well, when I talk about the recovery of the truth, what I mean is that the divine revelation was closed around 100 AD with the writing of the book of Revelation by the Apostle John. You can't add anything to the divine revelation after that time. But unfortunately, tragically, In church history, so much of the truths that are in the scripture were lost not long after the end of the apostolic age, for many, many centuries. And I won't get into it here, uh, what I would consider the whole history of the recovery of the truth and of the Lord's testimony. But it wasn't for many, many centuries that the Lord really began an open work to recover his children back to what we see of the truth in the scriptures. And I think we all would recognize that really began in an open way, at least, with Martin Luther in the 1500s and the truth of justification by faith. Martin Luther didn't invent something new. He found something that was already in the scriptures. And so we can say that truth was recovered by him so that it now can be received and affirmed by all of God's children, all who desire to know the truth, that yes, justification is by faith, 
No doubt there's another side, as I, I mentioned a bit ago. But for sure, in terms of the forgiveness of sins, justification is by faith alone. And praise the Lord for that. That was just a tremendous recovery of the truth uh, at the time of Martin Luther. But unfortunately, a lot of Christians seem to think that's all the truth that there was to be recovered. And they stop with that. They don't want to go any further with the Lord, even though the Lord has been recovering more and more truth as the centuries have gone on. And I did touch on this a little bit before when I was talking about the Reformers. Yes, they saw this matter of justification by faith, but they didn't see anything about the second coming of the Lord, about the Lord's return. And that wasn't until several centuries later at the time of the Plymouth Brethren. And that's a good example to show how the recovery of the truth is bit by bit. It's not once for all. And one of the truths that was recovered much later in the 1800s by this man I, I just mentioned, Robert Govett, was this truth that the believers will stand before the judgment seat of Christ and will be either rewarded or disciplined in the coming age depending upon how we live our life as Christians in this age. So to really appreciate this, you need to understand, first of all, as I said in the last point, that the truth in the Bible is always two-sided in nature. And you also need to appreciate that God recovers his truth step by step. If you don't see the twofold nature of divine truth, and if you think the Lord recovered everything once for all at the time of the Reformation, you're never going to see the truths about the Lord's discipline and judgment of his believers. It's not that it's not in the Bible. It's that we don't have the right mindset for seeing these things that are in the Bible. And that's why I'm trying to go through all these points to help us uh, have a proper mindset so we can come and consider these matters in a proper way. Now, that brings us to the final point I want to mention in this regard, which is that to some extent, the truths about the Lord's reward and discipline of the believers in the coming age are not on the surface in the New Testament. If you come to the New Testament in a superficial way, if you're not willing to really consider what it says and try to put pieces of the puzzle together, you won't be able to see these truths that easily. You'll see some things, but you'll miss a lot. And so we need to be willing to come to the scriptures in a more serious way to really see what they're saying about God's full salvation. And then we'll see these things in a more clear way. Some of them, some of the statements are on the surface. Don't get me wrong. And I'm not going to develop this point too fully in this episode because it's going to require getting into uh, some of the verses on this topic. And that's what I want to do as the Lord allows, in the next episode of this podcast, is consider this point in a more thorough way by doing something of a survey, just a brief survey of a number of the verses that touch on this topic. But I'll just mention there are verses in the New Testament that are very clear in this regard. I think probably the clearest uh, portions of Scripture, the two clearest portions, are both in Paul's epistles to the Corinthians, one in 1 Corinthians and one in 2 Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Verse 15, Paul's talking about those who build on his foundation. And he says, If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. Very, very serious and very direct and explicit warning. That's not hidden at all. And those who want to deny that the believers can be judged in the coming age have a very hard time dealing with that verse. That's especially the case when you consider that verse in the light of Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. For we must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ 
that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. So at the judgment seat of Christ, it's not just going to be about whether or not we receive some blessing from the Lord. We may receive, as it says here, some bad things from the Lord, depending on what we have done in the body. So again, a very, very direct, explicit statement. So there are explicit statements about this matter in the New Testament, but much of what the New Testament says about this is presented in terms of the types the New Testament talks about, and also in some parables. And it's also the case, I have to say, that while the New Testament talks about the reward and discipline of the believers in the coming age, it doesn't give us a lot of details about how that's going to work out. There are verses that say that if we're faithful to the Lord, we'll reign with him in the coming age. And there are verses which talk about how we can suffer a very serious discipline, a very serious loss if we're not faithful. But how that reigning is going to work out, and especially how the loss is going to work out, how we'll suffer if we're not faithful to the Lord, the New Testament doesn't say much about it. It seems like the Holy Spirit's feeling is because that's something that is involved in the next age. We don't know, need to know too much about it today. But it does let, the Holy Spirit does let us know that we can be rewarded or we can be disciplined depending upon how faithful we are in following Christ. But again, to really see that in the fullest way, we have to be willing to dive into the New Testament in a deeper way. If we just stay on the surface, it's always going to be something that escapes us. We won't be able to see this truth in its fullness. So that will do it for this edition of the podcast. And uh, again, as the Lord allows in the next program, what I want to do is kind of do a general survey of a number of the verses, a number of the portions of Scripture in the New Testament especially, that help us to understand this matter of the rewards and discipline of the believers in the coming age. And I hope you will join us for that program as well. Thank you so much for listening to this edition of the Christian Faith Radio Hour. For more resources, you can visit thechristianfaith.org, which is my website. If you'd like to receive my e-letter, just click on the subscribe link there and enter your email address. And to connect with us by email, just send us a note at notes at thechristianfaith.org. Until next time, may the Lord keep you in his way for his sake and his glory. In Jesus' name, amen.